Amen. A couple of you said it, but everybody said it. That's better. You're still polite and kind, so wake up a little bit. If you got a Bible, you can go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is where we will start today. We're going to actually move into chapter 2 as well. Uh, as you're turning there, I, this is a little bit of confession time to start the sermon. I, I have this weird habit, my wife will, will tell you, of pausing at random times when things are like super light and fun and it just as a family, we can be having a great time, and I'll bring something heavy into the picture. It's just what I do. Like yesterday, we were doing the Christmas tree thing. How many of you got your Christmas done? No guilt. No guilt. If you don't, you're just living life. You're just being present in the moment. That's okay. Come on, be, be brave. How many of you, you're good? You're good to go with Christmas. All right, awesome. But we were doing the Christmas tree thing, and, and the lights, the ornaments, the kids arguing over who gets to put the star on the tree really bad Christmas music, like it's, it's so magical, right? And we were, we were enjoying all this, and it just came to my mind, so I said it. I looked at Carrie, and I was like, you know, we only have like three Christmases left with Malia till she graduates. And Carrie's like, stop it! Like, don't do that. And that's not abnormal. My wife will tell you, that's my thing. Like, Carrie has a whole list of songs that I have told her. I want these played at my funeral. Like, she's got the playlist. It's just that way. She gets mad when I tell her playlist and tells me I'm not allowed to talk about it and I'm not allowed to die before her because she doesn't want me to have another girlfriend like that's just the real reality that we live but I'm really cool talking about that stuff I know it sounds weird but but the thing is and this is just my approach to life I want to be conscious of the heavy even when things are light like Carrie takes pictures all the time and she'll say she's posting to Instagram because she wants to have a memory, right? When you're married to a photographer, your Instagram is stupid because she's better at it than I am, right? Like that's just the way it goes. She wants the track record. She wants to keep those things where she can find them. Well, the reality is I want to do that mentally, even in the midst of great fun, lighthearted moments, the way my mind works. And I know it's weird. I'm okay with that. You can judge me. But the way my mind works is to process what lies on the other side of that. I don't mind the sadness. It doesn't make me sad because I think it matters that we live with the weight of our moments and of our relationships. I don't want to miss those things. I don't want to coast through, through life. And it annoys my wife that i got to deal with that. But that's just how I am. It's like that when we say goodbye to people, isn't it? Like I, I see this all the time at, at funerals that I get the privilege of officiating. People say things about the people that they've lost. Hopefully they're not saying those things only at the funeral. Hopefully we're telling them the good things before they pass. But all too often that's the case, right? Like we, we get it then. We get the weight of that. When we lose someone, we suddenly recognize all that they meant to our lives. I remember when Carrie and I and the girls were getting ready to move from Michigan back to West Virginia to plant new community. We couldn't wait. We were so excited. We knew our calling to come here. We wanted to launch this church. We had our families here. Our girls were coming home to almost heaven. They knew the words to country roads. Like we were, we were all in. We were so pumped. But we also had to say goodbye to some really good friends as well. Friends that, that we had been doing ministry with. Our kids ministry director and her family were, were like family. And that was so hard. I remember the grief we felt and the grief that we saw them feeling because we had been sharing a mission of the gospel together. And now it was changing. It was so hard. And, and as excited as we were, there was grief as well. There was joy and there was heaviness. And we watched our kids and we watched their kids struggle in spite of knowing it was God's leading. It was hard. 
And I remember even today, I remember eight and a half years later, I remember praying for each other's families on the concrete slab outside their garage. And we prayed for each other as we went, but we also prayed, help us to stay faithful to the gospel. Help them to stay faithful to the gospel. Though we're apart, 10 hours apart, be on mission together. We've, we've been in this series for three weeks now that we've called Finding Joy. And, and I love the reading that, that Christy and Jake and the girls did this morning because if we ever needed an Advent, this is the year. If we ever needed hope of Christ's coming to be present with us in the mess, this is the year. And for many of us, it feels like we've lost joy. Or maybe you haven't lost joy, but you know so many others who have. We've watched our world come unglued. From January till now, we've seen a pandemic. We've seen riots. We've seen civil unrest. We've seen injustice. We've seen a political season that for many of us has left us in a really strange and hard place. And so in the midst of, of this series, Finding Joy, we're studying the book of Philippians and looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church that he deeply loves. And today, in this letter from Paul to the Philippians, I want you to see a moment that Paul has that he shares in this letter to the church that to me, as I read this, I'm like, this is the concrete slab outside the garage. This is Paul praying for his friends. This is Paul speaking life into his friends as he writes to this Philippian church in a moment where he wasn't sure if he was saying goodbye, because if you remember, he was chained to a prison wall. And he had no idea what was coming, if it was goodbye or see you later. And I think it was a joyful moment for Paul, but it was also filled with heaviness. He was looking at the church with all the affection that he had and saying, don't miss the weight of this moment. I want you to see this because I think it speaks to us today. Now remember, last week Paul had just spelled out for the Philippians his own approach to his circumstances. He's in jail. He's in prison. He's in chains, unsure of his future. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's going to have prolonged imprisonment. He doesn't know if he's going to get released someday. And we talked about the fact that Paul's perspective of the kingdom of God, his kingdom perspective, was not changed by his earthly circumstances. And so Paul had this ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering. In Philippians 1 verse 21, here's what he says from his prison cell. Think about this. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now take all those verbs out and, and, or, or those, those prepositions. And what Paul says is, live Christ, die gain. Like that's the life that he has. That's the perspective. And he goes on. He says, if I'm go, to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. He's longing to go go home and be with Jesus. But he says, if I stay, that's fine too. His kingdom perspective was not changed by earthly circumstances. In fact, and we said this last week, his kingdom perspective shaped his kingdom desires that built his kingdom resolve. And friends, that's where we talked that joy is rooted in that. When we have a kingdom of God way of seeing the world, our desires start to reflect the kingdom of God. And what happens is that we get this grit, this, this resolve that cannot be shaken. And that's where Paul's coming from. And in the next verses, this is what we're going to talk about today, verse 27, we see how Paul starts to teach the church from that perspective. Look at verse 27. Here's what he says. Whatever happens, everybody say whatever happens. Now, you can fill in the blank with your whatever. Some of you, it's like, I didn't get my coffee. My world is falling apart. Some of you, it's pandemic. It's politics. It's whatever happens, Paul says. Conduct yourselves 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Man, I, we could pre, like, I, I had like 15 verses to go through, and I got stuck on about four this week. So the sermon series is longer now. You just got to deal with it. But here's what it says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is gospel integrity. Paul says to the Philippians, don't change your mission based on your circumstances. Don't become something that you were never called to be just because the world around you changes. I love this phrase that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, you think about this. If you, if you translate this in the Greek, what it really says is be as it, this is King James language. Are you ready, Shakespeare? Be as it becometh you. I love that. Be as it becometh. What? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Become someone worthy of the gospel of Christ. We get this, right? Because we see it when people live unworthy around us in certain ways. In our house, I don't know if you have this conversation in your house. We talk with our kids all the time. This is not the family that we're going to be. Right? This is not who we are, the way we treat each other, the way we value each other. When you're fighting over who gets to put the star on the tree and you're ready to stab each other with the fifth point of the star, that is not worthy of our family. Be, I'm sort of going to start saying to you girls, be as it becometh. Right? Live worthy. When someone is unbecoming, right? It, it, it's ugly based on our standards. Now, think about this. Guys in the room, think about this especially. When you started dating your wife, you were a lot better, weren't you? Are you with me? The clothes were nicer when you went out on the date. You actually went out on the date. Are you with me? You stayed awake past 9 p.m. talking to each other. You were living worthy of the person that you were pursuing. Right When I started dating my wife, and still now, because she still looks good, I got to dress better. I got to become something, because if I don't, it's unbecoming, it's dishonoring, it's unworthy. We get this culturally. We've come through this political season where I would say 99% of the politicians were unbecoming of the country that they were pursuing to represent. They were living unworthy. But here's the problem. So were we as citizens. We were not living worthy of the freedom that we claim to love. And what Paul says here, are we unbecoming of God's kingdom? Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I've got a problem with this statement, too, because here's the deal. Paul's saying, live worthy of the gospel. I've always been told, I don't know what you've been told in church, I've always been told, we don't stand a chance. Like, we can never earn it. We were never worthy. In fact, Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does it mean to live worthy of something that I could never attain? I think Paul's saying live under the banner of grace. Live in the beauty of the fact that you should not belong to something you've been called to belong to. The great Russian author Dostoevsky in December of 1849, he was sentenced to be shot and executed for anti-government activities. And he tells the story of being led to his execution. He says that the sentence of death was read to all of us. We were told to kiss the cross. Our swords were broken over our heads and our, our last toilet was made. I love his formality to describe to us. 
and there were six of them. He said, then three were tied to the pillar for execution. I was the sixth. Three at a time were called out. Consequently, I was in the second batch, and no more than a minute was left for me to live. And at the very last second, he and the others see a horse riding up with a soldier saying, pardon these prisoners. They have been set free. Now, this is a calculated act by the government, but it was a transformative moment for Dostoevsky. In his novel called The Idiot, he tells it this way. He says, but better I tell you of another man I met last year. This man was led out along with others on a scaffold and had his sentence of death by shooting read out to him for political offenses. He was dying at the age of 27, healthy and strong. He says that nothing was more terrible at that moment than the nagging thought, what if I didn't have to die? And then he says this, I would turn every moment into an age. Nothing would be wasted Every minute would be accounted for. If I faced down the sentence of death and I was pardoned, I would turn every minute into something never to be wasted. See, we could say this. When we see Dostoevsky's life, when you face the reality of death, life will become so much sweeter. When you know what death looks like, life becomes sweeter. Dostoevsky said later, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. I love that phrase. See, on his way to the prison after he was pardoned, Dostoevsky was given a New Testament. And he said his life changed and he, he came to believe that God had given him a second chance. And so the rest of his writings are filled with stories of grace and redemption. And, and in prison he came up close with thieves and murderers. And he changed his view on the inherent goodness of humanity. But he also came to believe this, don't miss this, that humans are only capable of loving by being deeply loved. See, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, when you've been loved deeply, unconditionally, by the power of grace, your life should start to look like that. You should start to account for every moment. Don't miss a single moment because you have been pardoned. Paul says in what could be his last address to the church, live worthy of the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. Live worthy of the good news that you've been given. Then he goes on. Look back to verse 27. He says, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He says, Live worthy, striving together as one. See, listen, don't, don't miss this. I, I spoke about this the very first week. The word in this, in this book of Philippians is koinonia. It's partnership. It's mission friendship. Paul says, I want you to stand firm. I want you to be the we that you're called to be. Be the church that you're called to be. See, friends, when you go all in with Jesus, you go all in with his people. You are called not just to follow Jesus, but to be a part of the church because the church is the way he conducts his mission in the world. Broken, falling apart, failing though we are, we are still called to be the church. Can I just tell you something when you think back to the way you dated your wife, the way you dated your husband, the way you dressed up for them, some of you, that's how you're treating the church. You're trying to impress everybody. You're trying to impress God. God, look, I went to church 40 times last year. 20 times last year. We had seven months off for a pandemic. God, I was there a lot. I wore my best clothes. And you're dating Jesus instead of marrying Jesus. See, because marriage is about the hard work. It's about partnership. It's about koinonia. We have something unique to this relationship here, this striving 
for faith. Paul goes on, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And then he says, this is a sign to them. Who? Those that will oppose you? This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. See, Paul pauses here. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, but I want you to understand, I know your opposition. I know you're being persecuted. And he says, no matter what happens, no matter what persecution comes, stand as witnesses to Christ. Now understand the context here, right? In the Roman culture, every little colony of Rome, which, which the city of Philippi was, would celebrate important days in Roman culture. They would celebrate the feasts. They would celebrate the festivals. When it was Caesar's birthday, everybody in the city was supposed to show up and partake of the festival and say, oh, Caesar is great. Happy birthday, Caesar. Your Lord, Caesar's Lord. But for the followers of Christ, they were living differently and they would stay away from those festivals. They would stay away from the sacrifices made to false gods. They didn't show up. They didn't engage the politics. They stood out because they refused to bow down. See, at the heart of this passage, Paul is presenting the church with a new way of doing life. Paul says, you're going to show your salvation to a dying world, to a world without hope to a world that's in desperate need of Jesus by refusing the empire of the day. The church was never called to go all in with the empire. Joy was found in living counter to the way of the world. Look at verse 29. This is where it gets hard, by the way. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, now Paul's starting to mess with their theology. Some of you are really happy with believing in Jesus, but when I start to mess with your theology, it gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? See, the Philippians' theology was joy means no suffering. And by the way, this theology is still at work and in life in all of us, right? Most of us have a view of the world, a theology of the world that says, I will be joyful when there is no suffering in my life. I will be happy when things go well. What happens around me, this is back to the kingdom perspective and desires, what happens around me will determine the joy, the amount of joy in my life. My pitcher of joy is full when I have everything I want, when life is good. But when my pitcher empties out is when things go badly. This was Philippian theology. But Paul's theology says, no, 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 there's joy in spite of suffering. You can have your pitcher empty and still be joyful. Paul says, when we suffer, you are counted as brothers and sisters to Jesus. He says, let the world see a way of life that draws them in. Let the people who don't know Jesus watch you love Jesus in spite of your circumstances. Live worthy of the gospel and watch what the world does. Paul says, the church's unity is the great witness to the world that their way of life isn't working. He says, you're not just called to believe in Jesus, and this is the uncomfortable part. You're called to suffer like Jesus. Can I just tell you, in, in 21st century America, we don't get this. We don't know persecution. We don't experience persecution. Our reality now is mild compared to the broader world. We don't know what suffering is. And can I be just a little bit blunt with you and say, I'm really tired of the Christians on every side of the political spectrum saying they're being persecuted. You're not. You're not. The liberal media does not persecute you. They're not 
holding an axe to your head ready to cut it off if you, renou- if you don't renounce faith in Jesus. The conservative media is not driving social justice out the door. You are not being persecuted. I have friends, and I've seen it all week. Oh, the Supreme Court ruled. They defended the church. You guys saw this story, right? church in New York was facing cases down of, are they allowed to meet? Are they allowed to meet in certain numbers? And, and everybody's going, oh, the, they're, they're persecuting us. They're going after us. I have so many friends in New York City planting churches. They're some of my heroes of faith. And they said, please tell people to stop worrying about whether we're being persecuted or not. We will be the church whether we can meet or not. I'm glad the Supreme Court upheld that. I'm not tearing that down. I'm saying stop claiming to be persecuted when we live with the majority and the most comfort that any human on earth has ever experienced. Paul says we are called to suffer with Jesus. Are we suffering today? Are we suffering? You know, in this Tigray region of Ethiopia, it's majority orthodox, right? Which is, which is a little bit different than the Protestant view of Christianity. And we have, we, you can read the articles, there are soldiers entering churches trying to find safety, and the soldiers are being drugged out and killed because they're not orthodox. But let's talk about persecution. Let's talk about suffering for Jesus. Are we really being the church? Some, sometimes, and, and this is off script, so I'll probably get myself in trouble here. Sometimes I think we're not even being the church. Because we're not suffering. Now, how do you suffer, right? Can you imagine if we actually gave 10% of our income? Like the scripture tells us to? Some of us, whoa, whoa, (laughs) way out of line. This is Advent. Let's talk about hope. Let's light candles. Can you imagine if you actually were called to love the neighbor that you can't stand? Some of us are really good at loving most of our neighbors, Amen? You don't want to talk about it. What if we were called to suffer with Jesus? What if the world did change? Would the church, you know where the church thrived more than ever in history? Was when it was the most persecuted. That's where the church grew at exponential rates. Paul goes on. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. This is my favorite part of the passage. I'm watching the time. We'll get you out of here. Relax. Here's what he says. Verse 1. Therefore, now anytime Paul says therefore, everybody say therefore. That means pay attention because he's about to tell you what has to happen. He says, I've laid the groundwork, therefore, and now I want you to act. He says, therefore, if you have, everybody say if, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing, by the way, the word is koinonia, partnership, sharing, mission, friendship. If you have any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and any compassion, please circle, highlight, underline all those words, if, 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 if. If you have encouragement, if you have comfort from God's love, if you have any common sharing, if you have any tenderness, if you have those things, do you have those things? Have you experienced those things? Friends, look, like, seriously, think about your life of faith. Think about the journey where you became a follower of Jesus. If you haven't yet, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you continue to pursue and seek and look for answers. If you're watching and you're going, I don't know who Jesus is, but but I want to know I'm pursuing. Great, keep taking that journey. But if you can remember where you began to follow Christ and then think about the history of your life after that, how would you answer these questions? Have you experienced the encouragement from Jesus or from his people? 
How did that happen? Have you experienced the comfort from God's love? Have you experienced the common sharing in the spirit of those powerful moments where it means to be the church? Have you experienced any tenderness and compassion? Paul says, if you've experienced those things. Now listen, if you haven't, if I read that list and you haven't experienced encouragement, the comfort of God's love, the common sharing that it means to be the church, the tenderness and compassion, if you haven't experienced any of those things, you just keep going living your life the way you are. I would say that. Seriously, if you haven't experienced those things. But he says, if you have, if you haven't, just do the religious thing. If you, if you have, he goes on, he says, then make my joy complete. How, how are we going to make Paul's joy complete? See, listen, go back to the moment on the concrete slab of that garage praying for our friends. We were sad, but we were unified. We were praying for each other. We were experiencing joy because they said to us, we're so excited that you would be following God's call to go plant a church. And we said to them, we love what you're doing here. You have transformed our family's life by seeing a kid's ministry that we've never experienced. We loved that unity. He says, make my joy complete. And he says, bye. How do we make Paul's joy complete? How do we make someone's joy complete? By being like-minded, have the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul says, you want to live worthy of the gospel? Be united as the church. You want to find joy? Be like-minded. Have the same love, one in spirit and one in mind. Think about this. How many arguments have you had this year? How many debates have you gotten into on social media? How many conversations have you had where you, how much joy did those things bring you? If you look back, what's the quotient of joy? I argued my political side and I was just ecstatic for three days doesn't work that way, does it? He says, have this like-mindedness, this unity. Make my joy complete. Can I just speak to you from what I think Paul's speaking as the pastor of this Philippian church, as the pastor of New Community? I want to say to you, make my joy complete by beginning to live worthy of the gospel. Begin to live worthy of the gospel. Stop dating Jesus and go all in. The last couple verses here, he says exactly how they're to do this. Here's the hardest part. Are you ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I wish it said do most things without selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think I could go there, right? He says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Friends, this is the heart of joy in a church that's finding it. It's really, really hard. You know, when you're with a bunch of messy people, and we are messy, amen? Just look at your neighbor and say, you're a mess. Some of you are too kind. You're just like, hey, you're cute. No, you're a mess. You're a wreck. You are a mess, and when we are surrounded with messy people being handed the mission of the gospel, it is really hard to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because your mess rubs up against my mess, and it's just messy, messy, messy. But we are called to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of you the interests of us. You want to know why so many of us have lost joy? Because we put our interests at the center. We're trying to find our joy. Notice I didn't call this series Finding Your Joy. I don't really, and I love you all, but I don't care if you find your joy because that's not where you're going to find it. You're going to find joy in putting others 
ahead of yourself. The way to joy is the way to humility. Next week, we're going to talk about humility in the way of Jesus. For now, I, I want you to get this. If you get nothing else today, this is the one thing I want you to walk away with. If the gospel has marked your life, your life should be marked by the gospel. If the gospel has marked your life, if you have a story of Jesus to tell, then your life should be telling the world about Jesus. If your life has been touched by the love of Christ, by the encouragement of Christ, by the tenderness and compassion of Christ, by the fact that you feel called to be a part of a church that cares about more than just gathering, but actually going beyond Sundays, if those things matter in your life, then your life should be marked by the gospel. What does a gospel-marked life look like? Here's four things really quickly. A gospel life lives without fear. You want to know how to proclaim Jesus to our world today? Walk in courage. Walk in peace and courage. I know some of you are like, I don't know how to do that. That's such a battle. And I get it. Keep pressing in. Wake up every day and get on your knees, on your face, going, Jesus, I am so afraid. I'm so afraid of the pandemic. I'm so afraid of, a, of where our world's going. I'm afraid of losing the people around me. The anxiety is overwhelming. The, the fear is just there. It's there. It's there. Continue to submit yourself to the weightiness, the lordship of Christ, and say, I can't do this on my own. And friends, I will tell you, don't get up off your knees. Don't get up off your face. Don't live Lift your head from the scriptures until God says, I've got this. Because a gospel life is marked by courage. Second, a gospel life is willing to suffer. Gospel life is willing to suffer. It's willing to go in and say, Jesus, I will give sacrificially. I will do whatever it takes. I am going to continue to, to put myself in positions that bring me discomfort for the sake of your good news. Third, a gospel life values others above ourselves. And fourth, a gospel life, this may be most important, a, a gospel life experiences the love of Christ. It's rooted, its foundation is built in the love of Christ. As we start to, to close today, I wanted to tell you and I may have talked about this group. I'm getting old, and I can't remember what sermons I've given and what I haven't. So you stick around. You're going to hear some things again and again. All right. During the Syrian Civil War in 2014, there was a group that formed called the White Helmets. And in the midst of a civil war where, where the regime of Assad drops bombs on its own people, the White Helmets were an organization that exists to do the work of search and rescue and medical evacuation when there were bombs. They waited for the bombs to go off, and then they would run into the flames to save lives. I want you to see a quick clip of this group. Check this out. The civil war began four years ago in Syria as a popular uprising against Assad. More than 215,000 have been killed. Nearly four million have fled the country, half of them children. Yet in the face of unrelenting brutality, heroes have emerged, and Clarissa Ward went to Syria to meet them. When the bombs rain down on Syria, these are the brave volunteers who run in. Nicknamed the White Helmets, they claw and saw their way through the rubble to save those buried beneath. Here, a two-week-old baby trapped under a flattened house for 16 hours is pulled out alive. At a training session in a neighboring country, the volunteers learned how to break through concrete and put out fires. 26-year-old Allah from Aleppo is one of more than 2,000 Syrians who have joined. Everyone loves us in Syria, he said. We deal with all the different groups. Do you feel proud of your work? 
Of course, he said, very. It is dangerous work. The regime has dropped roughly 1,000 bombs on Aleppo in the last year alone. Most of them crudely made barrel bombs packed with explosives and shrapnel. Often planes circle back to drop a second bomb targeting rescue workers. Allah told us his friend was killed this way. He was just 200 yards ahead of us, he said. Then suddenly a second barrel bomb landed on his car. What was your feeling in that moment? I felt desperate, he said. World leaders are watching the Syrian people dying and they do nothing. But the white helmets are undeterred. Even in the most hopeless of situations, lives can be saved. To give you an illustration of just how devastating the impact has been of Syria's civil war, a new report release says that the country's life expectancy has gone down by 20 years, Scott, from 76 to just 56 since the uprising began. Clarissa Ward reporting for us on the border of Syria and Turkey tonight. Clarissa, thank you. I don't know if you heard that line. <clears throat> Even in the most desperate of situations, lives can be saved. Friends, at the very core of Paul's writing was a belief that we were called to be a we for the sake of those who don't yet know Jesus. Our existence as a church comes down to whether we care or not about living the gospel into the world. Joy is found by pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. Listen to these words as we close. The band can come. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Become as it becometh. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Advent, the reading we heard this morning, oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down to make your name known. Friends, whose interests do you need to be looking to as we start into this Advent season? Who do you need to be pouring yourself out for? Who do you need to be valuing above yourself? Let's be about the work of the gospel. Friends, in a year where so many feel so lost, so anxious, so depressed, so lonely, so separated, so afraid to go out, so fearful of what's next. Can we stop judging? Can we stop politicizing? And can we start evangelizing? Can we start being about the work of the gospel over the next four weeks in a season that is Christmas, that is Advent, that is the hope of seeing the light of the world come to the world? Who comes to mind when I say, who doesn't know Jesus that you need to pour into? that you need to invite into a space where they hear about Jesus? Who is it that Paul would say to you, live worthy of the gospel, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? As we close today, we're going to sing this song about the name of Jesus. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus. 
But I would encourage you, just a very specific, practical response as we sing, as we worship together. Let this worship be about someone else today. Let it not be about God meeting you. Let it be about God working through you. Even as we sing, even as we pray, maybe you need to just name, maybe you need to write down, jot down in your phone, three, five people that you're saying, for the next four weeks, I am praying for these folks every morning because they don't know Christ, because they need hope, because they need to return to Christ. I'm inviting them. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to invest in their lives. What does it mean? Because, friends, I guarantee you that will bring more joy to you than you've experienced in a long time because you're pouring yourself out for the sake of someone else. Let's stand and pray together.